begin this morning, I'd like you to try to remember the last time you felt truly powerful. Is there some situation that you're in where you, you felt like, man, I've, I've got all the control, I've got the keys, you know, to the car or whatever it may be. Lindsay was telling me that she subbed a few weeks ago as a, a, a PE teacher and she got to have a whistle. There's a bit of power in having the whistle, right? <clears throat> and being permitted to blow it at your will. There's a kind of power there. Of course, if, you, if you've ever had that power, you, you might have quickly realized how things didn't go as you planned. Uh, the power that you thought you had wasn't as influential as you had hoped. Again, uh, trying to organize any group of children, you'll quickly realize how little power you have, how they can overcome you quickly. If you have power, how do you use the power? Do you tend to use it to serve yourself? Or do you see the need to use what God's given you to serve others? How do you think of power? On the other hand, can you think of a time where you felt especially weak? The only place I think our our weakness of the, the modern world rears its head is whenever you get into that infinite loop of phone calls with your insurance company. You know, and one, one person's telling you, call this doctor, and the doctor's saying, well, it's not our job, call the insurance company, you just keep going round and round. You just feel powerless. This huge bureaucracy's got me caught, and I can't do anything about it. There are other kinds of situations where we feel powerless, and it, it feels much more serious, like, like having a, a serious illness that feels life-threatening. We feel powerless. It's scary, right? Or, or maybe to be under the authority of a, of a really bad boss, who may be unethical or at least just harsh, and you're having to deal with this person every day. In some ways, submit to their leadership and, and obey them what they want, and you have no, no real option other than changing jobs or, or um, perhaps you know, being a whistleblower. What does it feel like to be in those powerless situations? This morning, as we start a new book of the Bible, this book of Esther, We're looking at a book that very much deals with these questions of power and weakness. We encounter Esther, in Esther, we encounter God's people in a time of great weakness for them. This book is set during the long period of Israel's exile. So if you think back to when we looked at Daniel a few months ago, that book was at the beginning of exile. When Israel was first taken into exile by the, by the Babylonians and, and Daniel uh, served there in, in, the, in the Babylonian court and over a long life he served faithfully through many kings even into the, the coming of the Persian Empire in Cyrus the Great. Well the book of Esther picks up the story several generations after Daniel still in the Persian Empire uh, instead of Babylon in the city of Susa which is further to the east. It's a book in which we find some of God's people still remaining scattered among this broad Persian empire. And it's a, a challenging book to read. If you know anything about the Esther, book of Esther, you may know that it doesn't mention God's name at all. No one even prays to God. As a, as a matter of fact, it's so lacking in references to God and, and piety that Jews around the, the, the AD BC turn felt the need to embellish it with prayers and additions. So there's another version of this book in Greek that you can find that has lots more stuff in it where the, where the people are praying and calling upon the name of God. But as far as we can tell, those things are not original to the, the Hebrew manuscript. So it's a challenging book to study. 
It's a book where we may, might ask, where is God? And, and how do people live, how do God's people live, where God seems absent? Another challenging part of this book is that we're, we always want to put you know, white hats and black hats on the various characters in the story. And as we get introduced here to King Ahasuerus, the king of the Persian Empire, it's pretty, pretty clear he's the bad guy, right? We can put a black hat on him. But then when we meet Esther and Mordecai, if we have our, maybe our, our Sunday school version of this book in our heads, we're very tempted to just put a, a white hat on them, to see all their actions as, as virtuous and good and godly. I think as we look at them, we're going to at least see there's, there's some questionable things they did. And we're, we're, we're tempted to read this book as if, well, Esther and Mordecai did, did everything right and in a faithful way, and, and God rewarded them. God rewarded them for their piety by using them to save Israel. And I think we're going to find that it's, it's more complicated than that. But in that sense, it's actually even better news. Because we see God not rewarding his people based on their piety, but God just graciously acting to save when his people don't deserve it. God preserving his people when they're weak, facing evil powers. This morning we're going to walk through these two ideas of the power of the Persian Empire and God's people's weakness. And I'm indebted to a pastor named Christopher Ashe for, for kind of seeing the, these two chapters in this way. So let's go ahead and read the first 12 verses of Esther. You can find this on page 410 if you're using one of the Bibles provided. If you can find the Psalms and just go back a little bit, you will come to Esther shortly. So let's read Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the province were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. As this story of Esther opens, we meet this king, Ahasuerus. He's also called King Xerxes, so if you have the NIV, you'll see him called that. Both names are just different names for the same person. He's king of this vast empire, 
a, an area that stretches all the way from the borders of India to Ethiopia, as it said. It's, it's really the first empire of the ancient world. He's seated on a royal throne at, in this capital city of Susa, and within the city there's this citadel, a kind of a smaller fortress area that's his domain, the, the palace and gardens and associated buildings. As we meet him, he's a man on a mission. He's early here in his reign, and his mission is to establish the splendor and greatness of his empire. Verse 3 tells us he gave us this, this feast for all his officials and servants, his army, all the provincial governors gathered from the empire. But verse 4 tells us it's, it's no ordinary feast, not like any feast any of us have ever known, a six-month feast. It's like a world's fair, we might say, but not one devoted to human ingenuity and progress like the world's fairs of the 20th century. It was a fair for the Persian world to celebrate Persian greatness and power. This is a time to, to show strength and greatness. As we read these verses, we see not just one feast, but it seems like three feasts. There was this epic six-month celebration of power where all the nobles are invited, all thrown for the people all over the empire, I suppose in, in the citadel. But then there are these secondary feasts, the seven-day feasts, one thrown by Ahasuerus for the men, and then another, I think, going at the same time, thrown by Queen Vashti for the women of the palace. Again, these were week-long, probably more specifically for just this, the kind of permanent residence of the citadel there in Susa. By comparison, they were short to the epic feast, but they're no less opulent. So all the details we get about the furnishings and the wine, these all come in context of these secondary seven-day feasts. We're told about the precious stones and the precious metals, all the decorations that were around them. When we wonder, what did they do at this feast? Well, this, the text tells us there in verses 7 and 8, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. This verse about the edict is a bit difficult to translate uh, and, and try to see what, what exactly this edict is about. The NIV puts it this way, By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. That's a clear emphasis. Each man gets to do as he wants. Another possible translation of the Hebrew is that it means the drinking was by flagons without restraint. And I think we're getting closer to the real picture. This is a, the point of all this is excess. These were not calm, dignified state dinners. Ahasuerus wanted his people to party. And he wanted them to know that their partying was all dependent on his greatness and glory and generosity. And also we see King Ahasuerus is not a disinterested observer just kind of looking down on the feast. He's leading by example. On the seventh day, he's merry with wine. And it's in this state that he summons his queen, Queen Vashti. This is not an invitation for Vashti to come and join him in the party. It's a command, a summons. He wants her there because she was lovely to look at. He wants to show her off to everyone. He wants her there because her beauty and his possession of her reflects well on him. 
So in just 11 verses, we get this essential description of this Persian Empire, of a worldly empire. It's huge. It stretches this vast expanse. It's powerful. It's obsessed with showing off wealth and glory in this showy way through overindulgence. Ahasuerus' treatment of Vashti also gives us a portrait of the inhumane and oppressive nature of it. Ahasuerus is willing to use anyone for his own good and glory. There's a superficiality to this. What, what glitters, what's shiny, what looks good. So that's, that those things that are most apparently desirable are highlighted. Again, Asuherus does not value Vashti as a beloved wife, but just as a beautiful thing, an object. In this empire, human life is only valuable to the extent that it pleases the emperor or his court. Now, on one hand, these parties in Persia seemed far removed from us, don't they? I mean, we might have historical interest in them. We can imagine the, the cinematographer turning this into a cool opening scene of the Esther movie. So they hold some fashion, uh, fascination for us in that way. They seem exotic. And yet there's something here that we also recognize about worldly displays of power. Think about going to a professional sporting event, going to the stadium. Don't we see some of these same things on display? I mean, there's no emperor telling us how to party, but there's plenty of partying going on, Right? By the end of the game, you're going to see some drunk guys in the aisles. And in those events, there's usually displays of wealth. Again, not in the same ostentatious way, perhaps, but you know, there's those well-dressed folks going in the VIP entrance or in the suites. There's abundance of food and drink. There's plenty of encouragement to overindulge. And often in these places, just like in Hasuerus' palace, beautiful women are paraded about as objects, and decorations. In other words, this empire is alive and well in many ways. Not the Persian Empire, obviously, but the empire that in Scripture we call the world. This domain of power and glory, wealth and excess, of superficiality and inhumanity. A world that is often obsessed with its own displays of wealth and power. Verses 1 through 11 of Esther only scratch the surface of the world. They show us the world at the height of its power, but what happens when that power is challenged? Verse 12 introduces the first problem into the story of Esther. We left off with King Ahasuerus summoning Queen Vashti to appear and to be gawked at. We can see how she responds in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. The narrative doesn't tell us anything about Vashti's decision-making or her inner states, but we have no problem imagining a list of reasons why she wouldn't want to go. Maybe she's had enough. Some speculate that this party would, would have been just too out of control for a queen to attend. Maybe she just didn't want to be part of that debauchery, or maybe she knew she would have been in danger had she gone. The story doesn't give us any insight into Vashti's inner world. The important details for the story are that she refused and that the king became enraged. 
there's irony here in the story. I think we're meant to laugh a bit at Ahasuerus. For all the pomp and power of Persia, for all this great revelry, it's brought to a halt because the queen would not obey. It's brought to a halt by the queen's wife. By a, we might say a domestic squabble. I'm not coming. And at this point, the whole story changes. We go immediately from party scenes in verse 1 through 11 to the king's cabinet room, where he gathers the wise men of Persia to come up with a way for Ahasuerus to punish his ex and to save face. These men gather to come up with a way to please the unhappy king. One advisor in particular comes to the fore, whose name is Mimukin. He gives his advice beginning in verse 16. So let's read this advice. We'll go all the way down through chapter 2, verse 4, to figure out their, their solution to this problem. Then Mamukin said, in the presence of the king and his, the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before the king, to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king, and the princes and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young, women who young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, Mimukin's advice is vindictive and also, I think, a bit ridiculous. I mean, Vashti has to be deposed, which perhaps is not a huge surprise. We can imagine worse fates for her. But did you notice the rationale driving Mimukin, right? He thinks that the queen's behavior is going to set this example for all the women of the, the kingdom. And he's appealing here to these nobles gathered and basically said, look, look what's going to happen when you go home tonight. You're going to tell your wife to do something and she's not going to obey. She's going to say, look what Queen Vashti did. If she doesn't have to obey the king, I don't have to obey you. So he, he kind of presents this terrifying scenario. And this is why we should issue this edict. The whole scheme is, is based on fear of the domino effect that Queen Vashti's disobedience will cause. But somehow, this edict from the king is going to solve everything. After the people hear this decree banishing Vashti, then Mugan says all the women will give honor to their husbands. Every man will be master in his own household. 
Problem solved, right? Doesn't this put the glory and splendor of the Persian Empire in a new light? Is it really so powerful and great? The king comes across like a a petulant child who must be appeased by his advisors. It even appears like he kind of has maybe second thoughts about Queen Vashti and what he's done, and the the advisors come in and say, no, no, we'll find you a new queen, one that's better, one that's more beautiful than Vashti was. And look, at he's willing to deploy the the great seal of the Persian monarch, this, this seal that can issue laws that it says cannot be repealed. He's going to use this to get revenge on Vashti, and he thinks it will make the women of Persia more compliant and obedient. And of course, there's got to be a new queen, so another edict has to be sent out, again, under the, queen, the king's seal. And, you know, officials are going to be sent out on this, this talent roundup, right? Young women from throughout the empire are going to be brought to the citadel in Susa. We can only assume this was a, a edict to be carried out by force. So nothing maybe sums up this uh, world more, the the nature of worldly power, than the end of chapter 2, verse 4. This pleased the king, and he did so. Absolute power deployed for the sake of the king's petty pleasure. Because he's been so offended by Vashti, the king is going to use his great power, extending through this broad swath of land, to steal the most beautiful daughters of the empire, and take them for himself. So with all of chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2 in mind, we can fill out our portrait a bit more clearly of worldly power. It's not just marked by wealth and excess of superficiality, of inhumanity. Its obsession with its own glory means that it's it's vengeful. And in this case, there's a, a certain since that it's inescapable. I assume maybe, maybe some of the important men of Persia could have hidden their daughters from the king. I don't know. But this edict goes out, and if you've got a pretty young daughter, she's going to be taken. The families of the empire are torn apart because Ahasuerus has to have a new, young, beautiful queen. And we also see the ridiculous nature of the power. He's obsessed with a a petty grievance, convinced that he can control the hearts and minds of the Persian wives with an edict. This man whose own queen won't obey him is somehow going to ensure the wifely submission of every woman in the empire. The picture we're presented with is both serious in a deadly way, robbing, robbing these families of their daughters. It's vengeful, but I think... Again, we're supposed to laugh at the weakness of it. How strong is king, the king and his power? This is a helpful summary for us to think about the world that we live in. A world that is full of powerful people, often willing to use their power in evil ways, but who also have an overinflated sense of their power, who believe that they're invincible, that they'll never answer for what they're doing. That's the powerful world we find ourselves in. The world of Persia is not too different than the world of today. But what about God's people in this world? We haven't really introduced them properly yet, and we we don't meet them until chapter 2, verse 5. Here we're reminded that God's people, again, were God's exiled people, 
having been captured over a century before and scattered throughout this powerful, vengeful empire. We know from Cyrus and other parts of the Bible that some of the, some of the Jews were allowed to return back to Jerusalem, but a great majority of them remained just scattered, living as exiles throughout the Persian Empire. And there were some living in the capital, in Susa. And this is where we find these two Jews, Mordecai and Esther. Let's read chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither mother nor father. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had the charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with, a co- with cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So we see this young woman Esther caught up in Hasuerus's net, just like Vashti, she's described as lovely to look at. And of course, her beauty doesn't go unnoticed by the king's servants. Mordecai is her older cousin, and he's introduced to us as a Jew, and in terms of his lineage and status as one of the exiles of this um, dispersion under Nebuchadnezzar. When we read of Mordecai's lineage here, we're, uh, we should flag up that he's a relative of King Saul, and that will probably become an important thing later next week. But for now, the more important factor is just that he's a Jew living in exile, probably an obscure one. The evidence suggests maybe he was like a civil servant in Susa, and so he had some access to the kind of the courtly area where he could keep an eye on Esther. But we see that God's people here are living dispersed in a state of weakness again, right? They're just subject to the whims of this evil king. As we look at their lives, it is helpful to compare them to Daniel. If you recall, Daniel was also uh, captured and brought into the courtly realm. He was put in, the, in Nebuchadnezzar's court, lumped in with a bunch of other young men and, and fed with the king's food. And if you recall, you know, Daniel very quickly started to try to erect some boundaries for himself to, to show forth that he was indeed a Jew and, and wanted to live righteously before God whilst trying to live peaceably in this place that he found himself. That's, that presents an interesting contrast between Esther and Daniel. You know, we, we can say that Esther didn't really have very many options, right? Probably she was taken by force. Um, but we also see that she seems to, some, in some ways, go along with, with what's been um, prescribed for her. And we'll see that a bit more later. We also see that Esther and Mordecai have made a plan. Don't tell anyone that you're Jewish. So they've, they've decided we don't want to look different 
than the world as much as we can. And there must have been a strategy here. Maybe Mordecai thought he was protecting her. Again, it's, it's not said. There's not really commentary given on it. But we see it, it's mentioned twice. So in verse 10, we just read, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And then chapter 2, verse 20, Esther had not made known her kindred or people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. So as I said, there, there's some ambiguity here. What are we to make of this? All that we can say is Esther's being caught up into this place and she's being swept along, uh, being showed favor, being given these young women to attend to her, uh, being going through the beauty regiment or whatever that consisted of here in Persia. Another interesting comparison that we might keep in mind as we look at Esther is uh, Joseph. Joseph is captured in Egypt, right? Taken first as a slave. And he also faces some difficult temptations, right? He's caught in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife makes these advances on him. He's enslaved in Pharaoh's prison. How does he live in comparison to how Esther and Mordecai conduct themselves? I think we're meant to at least keep these things in mind as we read. So we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, these obscure Jews who have now been taken into center stage, and we can see that Esther is on the rise. Uh, we see a few verses here in the middle of chapter 2 where the, the author kind of explained to us how these things worked in the harem. And so there would be, a, the, the, this is starting in verse, um, sorry, my glasses. Starting in verse 19, the virgins were gathered together a second time, um, I'm sorry, I'm going too far. This is verse um, 12. Now, when, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being, giving 12 months under the regulations for the woman, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months of oil and myrrh and six months of spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem of the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king's king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So without saying in so many words what's going on, we know what's going on. We know these women were basically taken to audition before the king. And if they pleased him, they were kept and, and, and returned. And if uh, not, I suppose they were just kind of left in the harem. When we start reading the, how Esther comes in, we see she comes in and she pleases the king. So we begin in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year's reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. In a weird way, we've kind of come full circle. Uh, in, I think in Ahasuerus' world, all is right again. He's got a beautiful queen. It's time for another giving of a feast. His royal generosity is on display. Uh, again, the world has been kind of righted in terms of what Ahasuerus' problem. Uh, as we'll read, we're going to see Ahasuerus has other problems. 
But I think we are meant to see again Esther rising through the ranks, re- receiving grace and favor, which are positive words, but grace and favor within this corrupt and oppressive system. What exactly she's going through or thinking, we're not told. We're not given any kind of commentary on, on her, simply that she's kind of wrapped up in this world that she's found herself in, and she's wound up being with this title of queen, another feast given for her. That leads us to the final scene of the story. We have Mordecai who's making his rounds, checking on Esther, and he's there in verse 19. The virgins are gathered together for a second time. It says Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Again, we're reminded what Esther has not made known. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. I think this is a, meant to be a summary of, of all that we've already looked at. So we have the, the power of the king on display and the, the vengeful, deadly power, right? When, when these fellows are discovered who've, who have plans to lay hands on him, to the gallows they go. The Persian gallows were likely a stick upon which men were impaled. So this is grisly death that's inflicted upon these men. We also see the, the workings of God through Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is doing something good here. He's doing a good turn to the king. He's saving his life by being in the right place at the right time. So throughout this first story, with first chapters, without God's name being mentioned, we do see favor being shown that will come to play later. Favor being shown to Esther and Mordecai and that redounding to the benefit of the king. We see the way that... Um, the king's authority is not as great as he thought it was, right? He's got all these servants and eunuchs, and yet we have two eunuchs who are supposed to be guarding the threshold, right? They're, they're supposed to be keeping evil out, and what are they doing? They're plotting to take the king. Uh, lay hands on probably means kill, I think we can assume, right? So they're, they're plotting a coup in his very household. The king is not as powerful as he thinks he is. But yet, what does Mordecai gain from this good deed, here it just, he's written down. That'll become an important detail later, but it becomes important because the king of Hasuera says, why didn't I reward this guy? So Mordecai did this thing. He kind of stuck his neck out, you know, uh, to say, hey, you might want to watch out for these two dudes. And he receives no reward. He's not, he's not recognized. He's not raised up. He's not given a better job in the kingdom. He's just kind of overlooked. And so we kind of end with Mordecai and Esther being there, you know, in a privileged place, perhaps, but still very much at the whims of a king who can have your head in a moment. They're weak people living in a powerful, evil age. When we think about ourselves and how we started, we're thinking about our our own weakness in the sense of a powerful, evil age. We're right to ask, well, what are we supposed to make of this story? You know, if you take a, a really bad way of reading the Bible, which turns everything into a moral, every character into a moral example. I mean, you could go in some really bad places with Esther, right? 
uh, make your daughters beautiful and they'll rise to prominence, right? That, that's a terrible lesson. That's not biblical, right? But it's, it's not too far off or some, from some bad ways of reading the Bible that we see, right? So we want to be really careful as we read this book. But we do see this, this theme of, of God's people living in weakness in a godless world. God's people subjected to evil influences. God's people face-to-face with a king who can have your head. Right, so we've talked about, you know, Esther's actions. You know, what, what would have happened to Esther if she had defied the king? Well, we know what happened to Vashti, right? She would have at least been banished, uh, and, and maybe worse, right? We, we don't know. But the threat of Ahasuerus is real. Like, those who go toe-to-toe with him, like these two fellows, his eunuchs, they ended up impaled in the gallows. So we, we recognize that God's people here are in a dangerous place. They are living in an evil age. And when we put it like that, we begin to see, well, this, this is not far off from how we understand ourselves as God's people today. So we've been in Galatians, so it's close to hand. The book of Galatians begin with, God, with Paul extending grace to the Galatians and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Even if Yahasuera, I mean if Mordecai and Esther don't explicitly here call on God and say, God deliver us from this evil king, they do show us the plight of God's people. And they point us to the, to the question, what will we do when we in our weakness are confronted by powerful temptations to worldly glory? Or by, confronted by powerful people telling us to do unethical things? Right? We can imagine this going in a variety of different ways. The, world, the world's power and temptation works on us in a bunch of ways, right? To join in the world in their evil or, or to give in and compromise in various ways. So part of the question Esther raises for us is, do we recognize the evil of the age? That's a big part of why we're doing this book in Sunday school, going through Strange New World, is is helping ourselves recognize the present evil age we're in. Do we recognize its temptations? Do we recognize the ways that we're going to be tempted to compromise? Do we recognize the spiritual danger we're in when we live like the world? That may be the the biggest, I think, temptation we face is to think that we can mimic worldly lust for power and glory and be okay, right? It wasn't that a large part of Hasuerus' deception, right? If I have one beautiful queen that defies me, I'll just get another. I'll just keep exerting my will until I get what I want, and I'll always be okay. I'll just keep making my edicts and going along. And we don't have the egomania of a, of a Persian king, hopefully. But we can be deceived into thinking, I'm just going to live my life my way. And I'll never answer to God for it. That's to be captured by this present evil age. So part of it, I think what God wants to do with Esther is just to wake us up. Do you realize you're more like Mordecai and Esther than you think you are? Or do you think that you are at home in this world? Do you think this is what you're living for? The Lord calls us to recognize our danger and to come to Christ for deliverance. To look to Jesus as the one who does deliver us from this present evil age. 
But notice the way that Jesus delivers people, right? Jesus doesn't deliver us by just plucking us out of our trouble and putting us in paradise, right? He, he leaves us where we are to continue following him and trusting him. So, you know, you may become a Christian, turn away from your sins and trust in Christ, and still be in a world that's full of trouble, right? I mean, the, the Bible actually promises that you will, that if you follow Christ, you'll have to count the cost of following him. So what does it mean to be delivered? You know, what would it meant for, for Esther and Mordecai to cry out and be delivered? I, the, the story doesn't tell us, but we can think about this for ourselves. What does it mean for you to have Jesus die for you and be delivered from this present evil age? Well, one thing it means is that you realize that because Jesus paid for your sins on the cross, that your sins are no longer your master. That all the, the desires you have to please yourself, to get things your own way, that, that by faith in Christ, you can die to those things. You can first be forgiven of them. The record of debt that you owe God is canceled because Jesus took your place. And you're also made alive with him. You're delivered. In a very real sense, as Christians, we are here to confess. Once we were lost, we were blind, we were dead in our sins. But now, we are alive. We've been delivered from this evil world by the power of God and the grace of God. And so now we live to his glory forever. So God would have a seed. You recognize the evil age you're living in. And what's your hope for deliverance? How are you going to escape where you're at? You're weak in the face of evil. Where will you turn? The gospel says there's only one place to turn. Turn to Christ who delivers us from this present evil age. Secondly, we see that the gospel's message is a message of strength out of weakness. I mean, we can see parallels between Esther, Mordecai, and Jesus throughout this story. We see weak people of God in the face of terrible evil powers, right? And unlike Mordecai and Esther, there's no question about Jesus' righteousness in the face of those evil powers, right? But we know for sure that, that he was completely subjected to them, right? He was handed over to the hands of evil men. Evil men laid hands on Jesus and crucified him, right? Jesus dies in the place of sinners and raises to new life, to the glory of God, and he shows us the whole trajectory of gospel hope. We serve Jesus, who was weak and became strong, who was humiliated before he became exalted. So what, what do we imagine the Christian life is? Do we imagine that it's all glory? It's just going from one mountaintop victory to another. Well, the gospel itself tells us that that's a lie. That to be saved, we must humble ourselves. We must admit our sin before God and receive what Jesus did. He didn't die for his own sin. He died because of ours. Again, because we, we've lived like a Hasuerus. We've lived for our own glory. We've lived with the maxim, whatever pleases me, I will do it. And because of living that way, we deserve God's judgment. But by faith in Christ, we can be forgiven. By faith in the, the weakness of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, the Christ hung on a tree, on a gallows, impaled on a stick, by that weakness, we are cleansed. And by his life, we have life. So this is the whole message we have staked our lives to. A message of 
strength out of weakness, of, of resurrection that follows crucifixion. Do you know that kind of strength? The Apostle Paul says that not only is this how we're saved, but this kind of strength out of weakness marks the whole Christian life. So 1 Corinthians 1.26, Paul says this, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So what are you boasting in? Are you boasting in yourself? Are you boasting in what God has made of you by his grace? We should expect in this world to be really weak. That we're not a, we're not a church for the noble. We're not, we're not a church where all the worldly elites have gathered to exercise their power, right? We understand ourselves to have been weak and to have been foolish. But the thing that's made all the difference is that God chose us. He plucked us out of the world when we were low and despised, when we were nothing. And through the grace of Christ, he has made us children of God. And so because of him, we now have the wisdom of God and we walk by faith. And now we boast in the Lord. Imagine that. I mean, compare the Lord's glory and strength to the strength and glory of Uhasuerus or of any other person. It's incomparable. And now as Christians, by faith in Christ, we boast in him, right? And so because of this, we have a faith that gives us hope even in the face of death. We are now in a sense, in a sense, immune from the ravages of death. Not that we won't physically die, but that we know that death will not be the end. And so in, as we look at this message of strength out of weakness, it helps us to see how we can be strong and know the world's own weakness, right? We, we can look at the claims of Uhasuerus, we can look at the claims of the world and say, you, you think you're strong, but really you're weak. Think about, again, another passage in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? We, we get a clear sense through the gospel of the weakness of worldly power. Right? The world, worldly power says, I can kill you if you don't comply. Right? In its most extreme forms, that's what the despot says. Do this or die. And what do we say in response? I will not fear what man can do to me. Right? You can take body and soul. I'll grant you that. But you can't take my spirit. You can't kill me forever. Because Jesus holds me. Right? That's the hope of every Christian. So we're not, we're not about like, here's a stirring story of the human spirit where the little guy rises up against the big bad guy. Like, that's not the story we're telling here. We're telling a story of God's supernatural grace to his people that sustains them, even in the face of overwhelming evil. And it's not because Mordecai and Esther were so good. It's because God is so gracious. When we think about ourselves on our own place in this world, our own, our own hope, our own weakness, once again, our strength is not that we were so good. 
We strive to be holy. We strive to obey in every way. We strive to, to be ethical and to work out our faith in the, the difficult situations in which we find ourselves in. But at the end of the day, our hope is not that we navigated every ethical question perfectly. Our hope is in the overwhelming grace of God. And where do we see that grace most clearly? We see it in Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us, who died to deliver us from this present evil age. We want to be a church full of people who are helping each other. Look to Christ when you're weak. As a brother or sister, you feel weak, so do I. And that's who we are. We are weak according to the flesh. But we can boast in the Lord and know that we are alive with him. We've died to our sin and we have risen with Christ. And so keep going. Endure in this present evil age in the face of weakness, knowing that we are united to the one who conquered death. That is our hope in the face of evil power. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray for wisdom as we study this book of Esther. But we also pray that this wouldn't just be a, an academic study or, or just seeing all the cool twists and turns of the story, but that it would give us wisdom for seeing ourselves and our world. We pray that we would not cower in the face of evil, that we would not panic or think that all is lost, but that we would know that you are always at work and that nothing happens by accident, that we would have confidence in what you have done for us in Jesus. Father, help us not to look to ourselves our own power or intellect, anything that we have, but to boast only in the Lord, to rejoice that you chose what is weak and powerless, what is foolish, and through it, through us, you've been pleased to show your wisdom. And we do pray that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen.